as we settle into the message, the book of Esther is not a popular choice for reading or study from our Old Testament canon. And not everyone may be familiar with Esther's story, so maybe a brief refresher is in order. Esther is a Jewish orphan, raised in exile in Persia by an uncle. She and thousands of others are descended from Jews brought to Persia by Nebuchadnezzar about three generations before this story begins. And as the story is set, the Jewish people are living as nominally free people in the kingdom of Persia during the Jewish diaspora of the fourth century BCE. So much for the history. Mordecai, another key player in this play, Mordecai is Esther's uncle and benefactor. He's a leader in the Jewish community living in Persia at the time. And through a remarkable turn of events, Esther becomes queen of Persia. This places her in the thick of palace intrigue and in a place of influence. Her position provides the opportunity to foil yet another plot to exterminate the Jewish people. Her story is full of twists and turns, humor and intrigue, and seminal moments where she has to figure out what the right thing to do is. And in today's scripture lesson, we enter Esther's story as she begins her journey into the courts of power, her choice as the queen of Persia. So I'll be reading from Esther chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. If you'd like to follow along, feel free. Later when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the kings be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoashin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned her to seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. 
Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her and to take with her to the from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shagas, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihil, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other young women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday through the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Like most personal journeys, Esther's story doesn't really begin here. It emerges from history and occurs within culture and is heavily influenced by the actions of others. Many biblical scholars believe this is a novella, a story with some credibility given culture and the time frame in which it is set. They largely agree this is not an historical account. So today, we might think of this in the genre of historical fiction, for those of you who read historical fiction. There's a lot to be disturbed about in this story. The first is the objectification of women. Esther is in a nationwide competition to occupy a position in which the only qualifications are beautiful young virgin, and pleasing to the king. The job description of queen hasn't changed at all since queen number one, Vashti, was removed and eventually executed because she displeased the king. And the story tells us that she denied a request from the king that would have paraded her in front of the king's drunken cronies as a prized possession. Can anything be more appalling to our 21st century American cultural context? Can you see the plot of the reality show unfolding before your eyes? If you're having difficulty with any of these questions, ask any woman in this room to tell you how these attitudes still play in our culture today. On top of this, 
there's the power wielding and power preserving nature of the situation in the first place. The people of the king's court who have suggested this competition are acting in their, in their own best interest toward their own objectives. And the women who are involved, including Esther, have very little or nothing to say about it. They're being used to please the king. That is exactly what the advisors want, to please the king. To what end, we might ask? They want to soothe this king's wounded ego. And they will do anything to do that, to prop the king back up, because their position depends on his position as well. Everyone who's part of the action is working to make themselves and their peers in the inner circle look good. And it's not a whole lot different than many of the systems in our culture today as they operate. Lastly, let's consider where and from whom Esther comes. She's a fourth generation immigrant, living within but not part of the dominant culture of Persia. Her ancestors were brought here a century before as a conquered people. Whether they're enslaved or just relegated to permanent underclass, the reality is her people are at the bottom of the ladder of the economy and the social status. But they are a people. They're defined by their shared identity as Jews. They worship differently. They speak differently. They claim a different historical narrative than the Persians who occupy the, the dominant culture. This story is ancient, but it is not unique. It is the story today of the Uyghur people in China, the Roma peoples of Eastern Europe, the Native Americans of the USA, and millions of other First Nation peoples and immigrants who live as their own distinct people on the margin of the dominant culture. If we examine this story as the novella it is, full of interesting characters, plot twists and turns, set within cultural nuance, we can clearly discern all kinds of bad behavior and ill intent. We're also reminded that at this point in the story, we don't yet know how the story ends. Any larger purpose or outcome that redeems these marginalized people or glorifies the creator God is hidden from us at this point in the story. For just a few minutes, I'd like us to think about the story of Esther through the lens of privilege. Who has it and who doesn't? And what do they do with it? Clearly, the most privileged person in this story is the king. He's an absolute ruler who was elevated to a position of power where one individual has subjects that bow before him. And the king rides high on that respect and fear of the people until he loses one or the other of those things. There's the entourage, the court, those hangers-on are treated by the populace with some level of respect because of their proximity to the king. And that privilege comes at a price. The price is maintaining the king's favor and maintaining the king in his role. 
There's Mordecai, Esther's uncle, who raised her. He enrolls her in this competition. Mordecai is a leader within the Jewish community living in Susa at this time. He's privileged within his Jewish community. But outside of it, not so much. He's part of an ethnic minority. And then there are the Persian citizens, all of those who are part of the dominant culture. They are familiar with the rules. They have access to the systems. They move easily throughout the society as people who belong. Their privilege is that of belonging. So let's look at Esther. Esther is an exile. She's a member of a conquered minority group and an orphan. All of these characteristics would deny her most of the privileges of the dominant culture. She's young and beautiful, and she's been taken along with many other young women to compete to be queen number two. In this privilege, she lives in pampered luxury. But these privileges are full of dehumanizing downside. We're told that Esther wins the favor of everyone she meets. The privilege of being able to mold oneself to the expectations of the culture. And she's had to hide her Jewish heritage to pull it off. Esther's story reminds us that privilege still exists in our world in 2023. To have it implies that someone else has to live without it, or strive to achieve it, or find ways to navigate around it. And let's remember, privilege is defined by each and every culture. So what do we do with this? As a woman in living in America in 2023, I experienced some of the same challenges Esther faced. But on balance, I am privileged in so many ways. I don't immediately recognize my privilege until someone who doesn't have that privilege points it out to me. And even then, I still may not get it because I live daily in the spaces that are dominated by those who share the same privileges I have. I have a nice place to live. I have more than enough food to eat. I have health care that protects me from catastrophic health events that could mean financial ruin. I'm white and I'm well educated. I have a passport that allows me to travel pretty much anywhere I want. And I have economic means to afford the things I want. While there is nothing wrong with these things, I recognize that it is the culture that I live in that affords these things to me and that makes them accessible to me. And those who don't fit the boxes that I tick are left to find ways to get by ways to survive, and ways to make progress in some other way. As Christians, we know that God intends for all of creation 
to enjoy well-being, to enjoy shalom, community, love of one another as God loves. This wasn't Esther's experience, and it sure isn't our 21st century experience either. But as the writer of Esther spends the next seven chapters describing how God redeems the human dysfunction, we're reminded that this story isn't over until it's over. And our story isn't over either. At the beginning of this new year, we are invited to look further ahead. What might the Spirit lead us into if we understood the privileges we enjoy as individuals and a community? How could we engage those privileges to come alongside and to advocate for those who don't enjoy those privileges? What privileges are we willing to set aside to humbly build the new and different FHPC community that needs to address our neighborhood? Are we willing to ask our neighbors what the neighborhood needs? And when we do, to listen deeply with only the excitement and expectation that God will birth something new. We don't know how any of this plays out. What we do know is that God has invited each one of us to be part of that story. Our story will continue to unfold. And my question to you is, are you in? Let's pray. Lord God, you know the plans you have for us. May your spirit open our hearts and our minds and guide us in each move that we make in this new season. Help us to understand all the ways we are privileged and also to let those privileges go so that we may love our neighbors well. Guide and strengthen us in those times when we are humbly engaging our privilege and use it to lift our neighbors up. Move us closer to the well-being for all of your creation. Amen.